Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Hundreds of thousands of acres of America are underwater as the mighty Mississippi and other rivers break their banks. Seems a hundred-year flood ain't what it used to be. Well, that's becoming a bit of a misnomer because we've had around six or seven or even eight hundred-year floods in the past hundred years. Also, artists confront and shed some light on climate change. I've been photographing people from the community, and I dress them up sort of like the Statue of Liberty. They have an American flag wrapped around them and a green crown, and I get them to hold a giant compact fluorescent light bulb up like a torch. And celebrating America's native greenery, ferns, moss, and grasses, we get down and dirty along the garden path. These stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman, in for Steve Kerwood. Torrential thunderstorms have been soaking the middle of America, from Illinois to Mississippi. Rivers have overflowed their banks and levees, flooding hundreds of thousands of acres, devastating crops, filling homes and businesses with water, killing at least 17 people. Arkansas has been particularly hard hit. When I spoke with Sandra Patterson, coordinator for the Office of Emergency Management for Prairie County, she was waiting to learn if her county would join 35 others in Arkansas that had already been declared federal disaster areas. It's, it's pretty bad. Probably 35% of our county is is underwater. The last time we had a flood this large was in 1973, and that was the biggest one since our 49 flood, which was 37 feet. But you knew this was going to happen, right? We didn't know we were going to get this much water. It was predicted about three feet lower, and then all of a sudden the water just kept coming so fast, and we had dams break north of us that put more water down on us. When it finally got here, it just backed up so fast. You could almost see it moving. Kind of overwhelmed everybody. Ms. Patterson, what do you do now? What do you tell the people of this Arkansas? We've declared an emergency here in Prairie County. We're waiting on FEMA, maybe, or the, the president to hopefully declare us a federal disaster so we may can get some assistance. We know we've got washed out culverts, and we know we've got washed out roads. You know, we don't have the money, the funding, and, the, and maybe not even the manpower to, to get this stuff fixed back. Well, Ms. Patterson, good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sandra Patterson is coordinator for the Office of Emergency Management for Prairie County, Arkansas. Tim Kusky teaches natural science at St. Louis University and is the director of the Center for Environmental Sciences there. He says that flooding along the Mississippi River is all too familiar. That's right. We've been getting more and more floods as time goes on along the Mississippi and Missouri River systems. Well, they're saying that this is one of those floods that occurs once in 100 years. Well, that's becoming a bit of a misnomer because we've had around six or seven or even eight hundred-year floods in the past hundred years. Eight in 100 years? Yeah. Well, we've had devastating floods here in 93, 73, 51, 37, 1929, 27, 1890, 1874, going way back in time. They happen over and over again. 
Are they happening in the same place, and are they happening for the same reason? Well, they're getting worse for, for any given amount of water. There's a few different reasons for this. One of the reasons is that uh, over the past uh, 150 years or so, we've built around 2,200 miles of levees and other constructions that uh, serve to constrict and confine the river channel along the Mississippi and the Missouri River systems. So when we, we make the river narrower, what happens is that we make the flood stages or the flood heights become higher. It makes it rise faster, makes the water move faster downstream, and increases its erosive power that can knock down the levees and cause devastating floods. And then you have the problem of development along the flood plains. Yeah, that's another problem, is that uh, even if the water was to flow across the floodplain, it can't seep into the soils as much as before because we've developed the floodplains extensively. For instance, since the 1993 flood in the St. Louis area, we've built around uh, close to 30,000 new homes in areas that were under 10 feet of water in 93. So those areas are now um, impervious to water, and all that water has to go somewhere. Don't people realize this? I mean, you know, Flood me once, shame on you. Flood me twice, shame on me. It should be that way. But uh, what happens is that people don't really understand that the risk is increased the more and more we build levees. I know that one of the largest, if not the largest, strip mall in the United States is just west of St. Louis. And they built it with a levee that was supposed to be, um, you know, one in 500 years floodplain. Yeah, that's in the Chesterfield Valley. That area has seen more development since the 93 flood than in the entire previous history of the region. And all of that area was under about 10 feet of water in 93. And what people have done is made calculations of the risk of things they call the 100-year flood or 500-year flood based on old data. Um, so those risks are actually higher than previously thought. And another factor that's coming into play here is that uh, climate models predict that within 30 years, we're going to be receiving around 20% more rainfall in this area, which equates to about uh, 50% more water flowing through the rivers at any given time throughout the year. What does that do to the 500-year levy? Well, it means it's not going to be a 500-year levy anymore. It means that uh, places where these kinds of changes have happened before, things like the 100-year flood suddenly become about the seven-year flood. Why does it always surprise people along there? Why do we always see these floods happening and people in trees? <laughs> well, the, the attraction for building a levee is that if you're in a town that gets flooded every once in a while, you would like to build a levee around your town to feel safer. And the, the politicians and the developers will tell you that once you build this levee, you're going to be safe. And that might be true. You might increase your safety by building a very strong, powerful levee. But the more and more of them that we build, we're displacing that water that could have flowed into those areas, and we're making the water rise higher somewhere else. So you build a levee, then your neighbor builds a levee that's higher, then you have to build your levee higher, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. Dr. Kusky, thank you very much. Thank you, and have a nice day. Stay dry. Yeah, thank you. Tim Kusky teaches natural science at St. Louis University. Of course, the poster child for levees that don't hold back the water is New Orleans. Even today, over two and a half years after Hurricane Katrina struck the Gulf Coast, some 90,000 former residents are still stuck in trailers provided by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Relief Agency. 
But tests indicate a third of the trailers have dangerously high levels of the toxic chemical formaldehyde, and particularly vulnerable are children and the elderly living in the mobile homes. FEMA officials now say they are relocating residents in trailers as fast as possible. But as Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports, it took persistent pressure from Congress and those displaced by Katrina to get FEMA to finally act. For 16 months in 2006 and 7, Paul Stewart told his story to anyone who would listen. But he got his big chance last summer when he came to Washington and spoke before the House Committee on Government and Oversight. The first night we stayed in the camp and my wife woke up several times with a runny nose. At one point, she turned the light on and realized that her runny nose was actually a bloody nose. I was also beginning to show symptoms of my own, which included scratchy eyes, scratchy throat, coughing, and runny nose. Stewart kept an air filter running, but the couple's symptoms continued for weeks and months. And we finally thought about just leaving. But at the time, we couldn't leave. We were still fighting with the Army Corps of Engineers, with FEMA. We had debris all over our yard. Money was short, and we were stuck. Stewart testified that each time he called FEMA, he was just told to open the windows. They also told me that some people are just, quote, more chemically sensitive than others. That statement kind of made me angry. As a former U.S. Army infantry officer and as a former police officer, I've been tased, pepper sprayed, I've been through CS gas chambers, and I do not consider myself to be a chemically sensitive person. Finally, Stewart ordered a kit and tested the air in his own camper. Formaldehyde levels inside with the windows open and an air filter running, measured 220 parts per billion. That's 27 times the government's safe level for long-term, round-the-clock exposure. FEMA employees on the ground on the Gulf Coast heard many complaints similar to Paul Stewart's. They urged their bosses to test other mobile homes. But according to documents obtained by congressional subpoena, FEMA attorneys said no because the agency could be liable for what it found. Following last summer's hearing, officials did finally test more than 500 trailers. Formaldehyde levels in many of them were high enough to sicken a significant segment of the population. So now FEMA has redoubled its efforts to move people into permanent housing, scarce in many parts of southern Louisiana and Mississippi. Throughout the FEMA trailer controversy, some officials have expressed uncertainty about harmful levels of formaldehyde, a toxic irritant, and carcinogen. This is FEMA Administrator R. David Paulison at last summer's congressional hearing. Despite 30 years of research and reports on numerous federal agencies, there is now no existing consensus on safe formaldehyde levels in residential dwellings. So again, we're looking to the experts for advice. More recently, FEMA fact sheets reassuringly said that formaldehyde levels in trailers were lower than what workers are allowed to be exposed to in an eight-hour shift. And a local newspaper reported this month a public health service officer told people in Mississippi the long-term effects of breathing high levels of formaldehyde is unknown. We contacted his boss, Michael McGeehan, director of the CDC's Division of Environmental Hazards and Health Effects, to ask if this reflects the agency's view. Except for the fact that formaldehyde is a known carcinogen, yes, the long-term effects are, are, are not well established and need more research. The state of California sets its own limits for air contaminants. State toxicologist Richard Lamb doesn't agree there's a shortage of information about formaldehyde. Well, actually, the, the information on formaldehyde is pretty well documented. You look at uh, acute effects, there's pretty a lot of information about that, the long-term effects there is. But uh, there are certain uh, information missing, for example, effects on the reproductive system. Uh, but that is a pretty good uh, database on it causing cancer. 
Formaldehyde in low concentrations surrounds us. It's in roadway exhaust, draperies, and the exhaust from gas appliances. California has set a goal of two parts per billion in indoor or outdoor air, a level the state's experts say presents no health risk. That's four times stricter than the federal government's minimal risk level. In order to remove formaldehyde from the air, California is now cracking down on major sources of the gas in people's homes, including plywood and particle board. The new rules will reduce emissions by more than half in three years, beginning in July. The Sierra Club is lobbying EPA to take these rules nationwide. Richard Lamb says the thing to remember is that substances that cause cancer have no safe threshold, so the goal is to minimize any extra exposure no level in which exposure to a carcinogen is considered safe. Meanwhile, members of Congress continue to investigate whether federal health agencies, including CDC, retaliated against a federal scientist who voiced concerns about FEMA trailers and whether they diluted warnings about the health consequences of formaldehyde levels in the homes. The next hearing is April 1st. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Coming up, saying no to more power plants. The Negawatt. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Kansas, the very heart of heartland America, finds itself on the front line of a fight over climate change and coal. It's one of the many states wrestling with the tough issue. It needs more electricity, but officials are concerned about the greenhouse gases produced by coal-fired power plants. In Kansas, they're taking a stand against coal, blocking permits for two new power plants. Living on Earth's Jeff Young has been following this story. And, Jeff, it seems that this story has turned into a real showdown, huh? This is a high-stakes standoff. The company, Sunflower Electric, and its supporters say, we need this power, and this is a $3.5 billion project that would create a lot of jobs. Kansas Governor Kathleen Sebelius and her Environment Secretary say, well, Kansas doesn't really need all that electricity. Most of it would go out of state. And a 1,400-megawatt coal plant would put out a lot of greenhouse gases, about 11 million tons of carbon dioxide a year. So far, neither side has blinked, and electric utilities and lawmakers all around the country are watching to see how this is going to play out. Well, tell me more about the governor's decision, Jeff. What's the rationale for blocking the permit? Well, in Kansas, the state's health and environment secretary makes the decisions on permits for power plants, and that's a man named Rod Brimby. Brimby's staff had approved the company's permit. They just looked at the traditional air pollution concerns. But Brimby also looked at the science on climate change. He looked at the U.S. Supreme Court ruling from last year that said greenhouse gases are pollutants under the law, too. And Brimby told me that he felt he just could not ignore those things. My staff did their job. They did an excellent job in reviewing the permit in the traditional sense, but because of a Supreme Court decision, because of additional information about climate change, I felt that it was my obligation, if you will, to make this decision. And we're talking 40, 50 years of producing some 11 million tons of CO2 a year. 
And so that's just a little vantage point from which I decided that, no, we needed to act on this. I made a decision to say, we will deny this permit. Well, that's a big deal. So how did the um, power industry respond? Well, this is not an industry that's accustomed to hearing no. And so they fought back with uh, kind of a nasty ad campaign aimed at uh, the governor, uh, funded by Peabody Cole. They also lobbied very heavily at the state house. The Republican-controlled legislature responded to that with a bill that would let Sunflower build its power plants and would strip Secretary Brimby of his authority to make those kinds of decisions about CO2 emissions. Hmm. And the governor just vetoed that, right? That's right. Uh, Governor Sibelius, she's a Democrat. She vetoed the bill. She also offered a compromise that would allow a smaller coal power plant if the company also committed to more wind power, more energy efficiency, things like that. Mm -hmm. The company says that's too expensive. They serve a rural area with a lot of senior citizens, people on low incomes. Uh, They want to go with the cheapest fuel that's available. A lot of people I spoke to say this is probably heading for the state Supreme Court. Now, Jeff, you mentioned that a lot of people around the country are watching this. What do you think they've learned so far? Yeah, you know, what Kansas is going through, it it goes right to the core of some really big questions. You know, sure, coal is cheap, but aren't we just ignoring the environmental costs? And just how are we going to meet both energy demand and the challenge of climate change? These are big, big issues. So I asked a spokesperson for Sunflower Electric, his name is Steve Miller, what he would tell other power companies. Well, uh, there's no question that if you... Uh, work to build a coal-fired power plant, you're going to have more lawsuits and you can know what to do with. I think they just have to decide how hard they want to fight for low-cost power. That's that's really it, because it's going to be a horrible fight, uh, a, a very emotional fight. It's going to be a very expensive fight, and you just have to be able to measure when uh, that ceases to become the right thing to do for your customers. Hmm. Voice of experience. Sounds like he's a, a little battle-weary there, Jeff. But what about the Environment Secretary, Mr. Bremby? What does he say is the, the lesson from all this? Well, for Mr. Bremby, the, the main lesson is that we need federal action. You know, if the EPA had been responsive to the Supreme Court's ruling, I don't know that we would be here. Uh, this has been a very contentious issue for Kansas, and we really shouldn't be here. No state should be placed in this position. It's important now that the federal government step up and and try to fill that breach so that we don't find more conflict at the local level. And, you know, Bruce, the interesting thing about that point is both sides are in agreement there. Everyone I spoke to, they all say, we need Washington to act on this. Now, they might not want the same kind of action out of Washington, but it's pretty clear that the uncertainty around all of this has just become paralyzing. State lawmakers can't set good policy. Industry can't make good investment decisions unless they know what the rules are. Living on Earth, Jeff Young in Washington. Jeff, thanks a lot. You're welcome. You can learn more about the Kansas Showdown at our website. And while you're there, check out our series, Generating Controversy, The Changing Climate of Coal. It's all at LOE.org. So if you can't make more megawatts, how about producing megawatts? The idea of the megawatt conserving energy through greater efficiency started out as a typo, an N in place of an M. Energy activist Amory Lovins came across the mistake in a Colorado Public Utilities Commission report. The goof caught his fancy and may help us power our future. Amory Lovins founded the Rocky Mountain Institute, a think tank that focuses on energy issues. He was in Hawaii when I caught up with him by phone and asked him about the megawatt. 
A megawatt is electricity that's saved by using it more efficiently or at a smarter time. So you don't need to produce it to give the same hot showers, cold beer, or other effect that you want. And you've been living in a megawatt world for what, 25 years now? Yeah, uh, I live up in the Rockies, and the first thing we did was insulate it so well that it uses only about 1% the normal amount of heating energy, and that comes from a couple of occasionally run wood stoves because we've got to burn the energy study somehow. And uh, then it, it also made the house 1100 bucks cheaper to build because super insulation and super windows cost 1100 bucks less to put in than it would have cost just to install a heating system, let alone to run it. So we then took the saved money plus another $6,000, $1.50 a square foot, and used it to save, among other things, 90% of the household electricity. So if we bought that instead of making it with solar, it would cost 5 bucks a month. And that's with 1983 technologies that paid for themselves in the first 10 months. If we did it today, the house would cost less than normal to build. With even greater efficiency, the household electric would be only about 2 bucks a month worth. Have you upgraded your house since you built it? Yeah, in fact, we're doing that right now. We're in the middle of the fifth lighting retrofit, the first daylighting retrofit. Um, We've just upgraded the windows, so they insulate like 14 sheets of glass, or in one case, 19. And uh, the technology continues to improve faster than we use it. It's like the uh, low-hanging fruit keeps mushing up around the ankles. It's spilling in over the tops of our waders, and the innovation tree keeps pelting our head with more fruit. If any, creature comforts are you missing? None. (laughs) We have all modern conveniences, but uh, we use very efficient lighting, a lot of daylighting. In fact, we're just adding some daylighting. And uh, we have all the normal kitchen appliances, but we get our space and water heating 99% from solar, and we designed the house so it also keeps itself cooled, so we don't need air conditioning. Although, if we did, we would need very little, even in a hot climate. A friend of mine in Bangkok built a house actually modeled on ours, and it uses a tenth of normal air conditioning energy to give better comfort at the same construction cost. Now, I have those spiral, uh, you know, fluorescent-efficient bulbs in my house. My house is pretty well insulated, but I'm a mere mortal. I, how, how can I achieve a megawatt life? Well, whenever you buy something that uses electricity, buy it very thoughtfully. If it's a major appliance, go to ACEE.org, American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, and look up their list of the most energy efficient appliances. Get one of those. For example, my refrigerator uses 8% and my freezer 15%, the normal amount of electricity. And uh, then make sure you turn off stuff you're not using. A substantial fraction, some people think about a fifth of the electricity drawn by a typical house is stuff that's turned off but still keeps sipping juice. Those are called vampire loads. We need to kill them off. What do you think it will take to make conservation or efficiency the bedrock of our energy future? There's a rapidly spreading trend that I think will will make this uh, a general practice and not just in, in a handful of states. That's called decoupling and shared savings. What it means is you decouple the utility's profits from how much energy it sells. So it's no longer rewarded for selling more, and it's no longer penalized for selling less. And then if they do something smart to cut your bill, like helping you get more efficient, you let them keep a small part, maybe a tenth of the saving as extra profit, so that your and their incentives are entirely aligned. This has a miraculous effect on utility behavior. 
So is the electric utility um, sending you a check? The electric utility sends me a small check for the extra solar electricity I make. That's more than I require from the part of the building, the office end, that does interact with the grid. The household, uh, I just make it, put it in a big bunch of nickel iron batteries, and then use it as needed. I've never run out. Now, you're in Hawaii right now. Are you able to take your energy-efficient lifestyle with you there? (laughs) I'm staying in a a friend's house that uh, uses almost no energy, and uh, many people around here use solar power. You know, they're up in the hills. Uh, it's, it's very interesting what happens in the most oil-dependent state when people suddenly realize that it's a lot easier and cheaper not to buy the oil in the first place. Amy Lovins is the founder, chairman, and chief scientist at the Rocky Mountain Institute of Snowmass and Boulder, Colorado. Mr. Lovins, thank you very much. My pleasure. Now from Negawatts to the aisles of a natural food store. Alongside the organic tofu and handmade goat cheeses, a Whole Foods market in Connecticut is taking its green image one step further by opting for clean energy from a fuel cell. Bob Byron is with UTC Power, which supplied the new power source. The fuel cell that's positioned at Whole Foods right now is providing 50% of the store's electrical needs. With our upcoming product, the 400 kilowatt product, we'll be able to provide just about all the power requirements that stores. The fuel cell isn't new. The basic electrochemical process was discovered more than 150 years ago and was used in the 1960s to supply electricity to spacecraft and lunar landers. Talk about living off the grid. Well, today fuel cells are finding more down-to-earth applications. We turn to Bob Remick, Director of Hydrogen Technologies and System Center at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. The fuel cell itself is very straightforward chemistry. One of the problems is they run very well on hydrogen and oxygen from the air. The question, of course, is hydrogen doesn't grow on trees. You can't punch a hole in the ground and find hydrogen like you can natural gas. So the trick is to get low-cost hydrogen. How might you be able to do that? Well, obviously, hydrogen from natural gas costs a lot of money, but hydrogen from uh, methane produced by anaerobic digestion is cheap. In fact, that's almost free. Uh, and you then go to things like food processing plants. There's an onion manufacturer, Otis Onions in California, or a brewery where you've got anaerobic digesters digesting organic biomass. And they make the methane, and they can use that methane to fire fuel cells and make their own electricity right on the site. I love it. Power plant of the future fueled by onions. Onions, uh, the wet leftover from hops, anything you've got that uh, is digestible. The beauty of that is the methane is coming from biomass, from organic material that was grown. So that biomass removes carbon dioxide as it grows. You use it in the fuel cell to produce electric power. The the carbon dioxide goes back into the atmosphere. It's a closed loop. It's a zero-sum game. The majority of the electricity being produced for the grid, 75% of that is fossil fuels, making electricity at an efficiency of maybe 35 to 40%. In the case of the best combined cycle natural gas plants, 50%. The other 50% of that fuel value is lost to the environment. By locating a fuel cell right next to your 
business or even your residence, you can use that waste heat to heat hot water, to uh, provide space heating. So I've actually increased the efficiency of the use of that natural gas from 40 to 50% for just powering electricity to 80 to 90% where I'm doing both electricity and power. That reduces by a large amount the carbon dioxide emissions going into the air, the greenhouse gases. And how much power would a, a fuel cell produce? Well, obviously, they're sized uh, right now. Fuel cells are sized everywhere from uh, operating your cell phone all the way up to megawatt. Did you say a fuel cell for my cell phone? Yeah, there are, are fuel cells being developed by Sony and Panasonic, for example, that will be used running on alcohol cartridges and would give you extended play on your cell phone or your computer. Use the example here of backpacking up in the Colorado mountains for a week and having your computer available the whole time without ever worrying about your batteries running down. Start to run out of fuel, you pop in another fuel cartridge. Those are going to be hitting the market within a year or two. Wow. So when will there be a fuel cell powering my house? Actually, you can probably buy a fuel cell to power your house right now. Uh, the problem there is the price of that's probably $40,000. So it's a little bit too expensive for you to want to go out and buy it for your house. Why is it so expensive? Well, part of the problem is the way they're being manufactured. Uh, the manufacturing of fuel cells is done... I use an analogy, the way Boeing makes jetliners on an assembly floor with people running in and out, putting parts onto it. Uh, what they need to do is learn to transition to the way Chrysler makes automobiles on an assembly line with a lot of robotics uh, doing it so that bring the price down. One of the ways of, of doing that is to start selling a lot of fuel cells, but that's sort of a chicken and egg problem. How do you sell $40,000 fuel cells to get the numbers up so that you can bring the price down? But because of the cost, um, you still have very specific applications for which this is uh, uh, cost-effective, and it's not in for general use yet. Uh, there are, yeah, there are fuel cells being sold right now for what are called premium power applications. There is a place where I, I, I absolutely have to have electricity 24-7. The police station in Central Park in New York is running on a fuel cell. It doesn't matter what happens to the grid in New York, they have a power to run that police station and run their communications. Also, fuel cells are being installed in banks that have large credit card operations. So these are the places where they're being put in right now at the, the high price they cost. But that's not going to get the production up to where you can get the price down. So that's where things like the, uh, the, the government incentives come in, where you have the federal government who are actually giving you incentives, tax incentives, or actual cash back if you buy a fuel cell. The Connecticut... Uh, is helping to buy down the cost of those fuel cells. So people like Whole Foods can buy a fuel cell, and now they can make a good business deal for actually installing what otherwise would be a very expensive fuel cell in their operation right now and see a payback on it. So what are we waiting for? There's a lot of customers out there that haven't yet recognized there's a product on the market that might help them. The, the problem is you've got to build those large manufacturing facilities that can produce fuel cells cheaply. That's going to require a lot of investors. That's not a easy thing to do in this current environment. Well, Bob, thank you very much. You're welcome. Bob Remick is director of the Hydrogen Center at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. It's not far from the Coors Brewery. I guess you'd get plenty of feedstock from there. Yes, you would.
You can hear our program anytime on our website or get a download for your MP3 player. Our address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Just ahead, fiddling with ferns in New England. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Bruce Gellerman. The unprecedented warming of Antarctica has triggered the collapse of a colossal chunk of ice along the Wilkins Ice Shelf. Scientists say global warming is to blame for the calving of an iceberg 25 miles long and fear the entire 5,000-square-mile shelf could cave into the sea. But you don't have to go to the bottom of the world to see and feel the devastating effects of human-caused catastrophe. Here in Boston, art is imitating life at an exhibition called Greed, Guilt, and Grappling, Six artists respond to climate change. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj took a look. For these six artists, the hot topic of global warming isn't best shown by charts and graphs, but by a 13-legged table, video projections of people yawning, and a full-sized igloo. I see the igloo as the zero-impact dwelling. Environmental artist John Tajuri. It's completely off the grid. It's not plugged in, it's not heated by anything but a little bit of seal oil. And when you're done with your igloo, it vanishes back into the world without a trace. Or leaves just a puddle. Tajuri's installation, Housewarming, originally featured two igloos, one made out of charred wood, meant to look like coal, and the other of ice, which he left outside in front of the gallery. A month into the exhibit, not even the puddle remains of the ice igloo. It's melting. Everyone goes, well, it's melting. So, of course it's melting. I mean, where this the whole show is about global warming. I mean, yes, it's melting. Artist Mags Harries hammered out a somewhat more durable response to the changing climate, an exhibit called One-Legged Table. She pieced together 13 different table fragments, each with only one leg, so that they can only stand with the support of the others. Gallery visitor Laura Gonzalez got the message. Well, I think that it symbolizes how one person leans on another person on another person and how if that person uses the other person we can all come together and help one cause basically. Gonzalez is with about a dozen other teenagers from Boston's Trinity Church visiting the global warming exhibition. They were invited to eat dinner at the 13-legged table. Harry's wants her work to suggest the role a table plays in the home, a place where individuals with diverse interests discuss common problems. It's, it's really a metaphor for how problems can get solved on the very basic level. And the, the table in a home is the place where conversation happens. Sometimes difficult, sometimes great, sometimes celebratory. Mags Harris has hosted five meals in the gallery, inviting community groups to talk about global warming over food and drinks at her unique table. Wendy Baringold, director of arts programming at the center, says it's all about getting the public involved. Five of the six artists here actually have included a public participation component to the exhibition. 
So, for example, John Tajuri says visitors aren't supposed to just look at his igloo. They're supposed to get inside it and think. You can sit there and go, like, why am I here? What am I doing inside this igloo in a gallery in Boston? He says art should be approachable and fun. And director Baring Gold says because it's interactive, the show appeals to more people. The work is in a gallery, but the work in the gallery has been created with the participation of people who might not normally come into a gallery. Artist Mags Harry says she's getting as much out of the exhibition as the visitors. It's really pretty inspirational to hear 16, 17-year-old kids um, really be quite uh, aware of these issues and willing to do something about it. One exhibit in particular appealed to Stephen Rodenas. It was artist Clara Wainwright's eco-shaman robes, colorful tapestries embroidered with images of endangered species. We see birds in these quilts, and you see birds everywhere, and you seem old. They're just birds that are going to be there by the time I'm 50. But like, when I'm 50, I'm pretty sure that some of these birds won't be here. And I'm always like, oh, I should have recycled that water bottle. If I would have made that effort, I could have seen this bird. I could have seen this frog. I wouldn't have to go to the zoo. As the conversation at the table turned from what the works of art mean to how to make their church greener, the teenagers took turns trying out another of John Tajuri's projects, Compact Liberty. I've been photographing people from the community, and I dress them up sort of like the Statue of Liberty. They have an American flag wrapped around them and a green crown, and I get them to hold a giant compact fluorescent light bulb up like a torch. Uh, How do you feel? A little goofy, but if any of this helps to bring awareness for the issues of climate change and global warming and energy use, then it's cool. What does the light bulb symbolize for you? I think it symbolizes that environmentalism is definitely patriotic. I think that how we consume our energy and where we get it, um, it's all about what's going on in the world today. I mean, things like the Iraq War come to mind and also how we're going to work as a country in the future. That's teenager Abby Bach. In another room in the gallery, 15-year-old Helen Henderson is contemplating global yawning for a small planet. Well, I'm looking at um, two projections, and one is of um, just random people yawning, and another is of an artist yawning over and over again. (laughs) The artist who devised it, Jake Critchley, says research shows that yawning helps keep our brains from overheating. He wanted to make a statement about the Earth's need to cool off. But Helen had a different interpretation. I think the artist was saying that when people hear global warming, they just want to yawn and not think about it. Director Baring Gold says far from boring visitors, the global warming theme has excited them. I've had a number of groups who wanted to know if they could reserve the opportunity to have a slumber party in the igloo, and we haven't quite figured out how to do that yet. You know, sort of afternoon siestas, yes, slumber parties, I'm not so sure. (laughs) Well, here's to art taking the yawn out of global warming. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj. Ferns usually play second fiddle in gardens. But in William Kalina's new book, Native Ferns, Moss, and Grasses, these emerald plants, subtle and sensuous, take their place front and center. Kalina directs research and development at the New England Wildflower Society, which runs The Garden in the Woods. 
30 miles west of Boston in Framingham, Massachusetts, it's the premier botanical garden in the nation for plants native to America. A few weeks ago, Bill Kalina took me for a walk along snow-covered paths through the garden in the woods in search of native ferns, moss, and grasses. The steps might be kind of slippery, so we can go, uh, you know, take this other path over here. What? Native ferns, moss, and grasses. And how come it's not mosses? Well, it, technically it should be mosses. That was, a, that was something that the, the publishers thought there were too many sounds in the title, so they decided to shorten it to moss. But when I first uh, pitched this idea to the, my editor before I did the woody plant, she said, well, nobody's going to buy a book on green. You know, it's all green. And... Uh, and and so I, I, I thought a lot, I joke about it in the book, you know, saying, well, I'm going to go around and buy some plastic flowers and stage them around in amongst right. all the ferns, you know, because uh, you, you just naturally want to see color. But the more I thought about it and, and wrote about it and focused my own um, thinking on the on the matter, the, the grasses in the, sh- in the sun and, and ferns in the shade and mosses, too, really provide the texture and the background on which you know the wildflowers kind of paint, so to speak. You think about a meadow without grasses, it wouldn't look wild, it wouldn't really look appropriate. And the same way uh, in most places in the woods, if you walk around in the woods, most of what you see in the understory, especially here in the northeast, are ferns. You don't see huge blazes of wildflowers. You see them sort of scattered around. It's the ferns that really hold it all together. Well, let's take a walk. Yeah. Yeah, this is what Simon Garfunkel would call a hazy shade of winter. Yeah, that's right. You know, we've had uh, some years where it's, it stays mild for a long time, and a lot of years when we have you know, more than this snow by, uh, by this time of year. But the, the property here is uh, just under 50 acres, and uh, you, you drove here, so you know it's this little sort of oasis in the middle of the suburban sprawl of, of Boston. Well, there's a fern right right there. Yeah, this is a Christmas fern here. Uh, so named because it is one of the few truly evergreen ferns that live around here. So most of the ferns will die back down to the ground uh, during the wintertime. But this is really evergreen. People used to collect these fronds for Christmas decorations, you know, just a little bit of green. Uh, and people sort of joke, if you look... Um, if you look at these and you pull one of these things off, it looks kind of like a little stocking, one of these uh, leaflets. Oh, yeah. And so that's another, you know, sort of another wives' tale. That's why it's called Christmas fern. But uh, What's the botanical name? Polysticum acrostichoides. Most of the ferns have very interesting sort of tongue-twisting names, and that's one of the Polysticum acrostichoides. Yeah. Give me some other examples of tongue-twisting names. Well, among the ferns, one of my favorites is, is a glade fern. The Latin name of that is Diplasium pycnocarpon. And then we've got hay-scented fern, which is Denistadia punctolobula. So, you know, this, the, the, the Latin names really, especially with ferns, are, they're made to describe different features of the plants in Latin. They're not made to be sort of easy and, and friendly to pronounce. That's why common names like glade fern and hay-scented fern are kind of nice for people mm. to have, too. But, uh, Lady fern. Lady fern, yeah, that's a nice, easy one. Too. Right, right. Now, what about lady fern? I understand it's it's like the most popular here. Is that right? Well, lady fern is one of the most abundant ferns around, and it's it's what I think of as kind of a quintessential fern. And if you sort of picture a fern in your mind, what what a frond fern frond would look like, and the texture of it and everything, that's pretty much what a lady fern looks like. Is it true that lady ferns can be found in every state, but Nebraska? <laughs> yeah. 
I bet there's going to be somebody out there now in Nebraska proving us wrong. But according to the, uh, uh, you know, the, the taxonomic work, yeah, that's basically why, why not Nebraska? Because Nebraska doesn't have uh, much in the way of the sort of the woodland habitat that they do. Most, most of the other western states have enough higher elevation habitat somewhere that the lady ferns can grow. So there are some ferns, like bracken fern, for instance, which is common in the woods around here probably vying for the most common plant in the world. You can find bracken fern on, on just about every continent from the, you know, the rainforests to, uh, to the mountaintops and from, you know, the boreal forest to, to Florida and Asia and all, all over the place. It's amazing. Part of the advantage of something like that that's been around for so long, it's been able to colonize just about everywhere. So in parts of Asia, people actually collect and eat the fiddleheads out of that species but it's a highly toxic thing and there's toxic <laughs> toxic fern, fern yeah for, well you, ha- you got to figure that if you've been around for millions of years you figured out how to prevent being eaten right so ferns most ferns are loaded with defensive chemicals to prevent them from being eaten and bracken fern has got several different kinds of poisons so i certainly don't recommend eating it really yeah because when i think of ferns i think of dinosaurs yeah. And the the ones that were back then, are they the same as now? There's an amazing discovery, you know, just in the last few years they found there's a fern that grows around here called interrupted fern, Osmunda claytoniana. And uh, it's a beautiful fern. It's a three foot high. It comes out of the ground. It has black, uh, the, the spores that it reproduces with are, are in these special fronds that are black. So it's very sculptural when it comes out of the ground. And... Um, Recently, they found fossils in Antarctica, of all places, that are 200 million years old of this species. So it, is, it has remained unchanged for 200 million years. You think about all the species that have gone extinct in 200 million years, and this fern, unassuming fern, is now, you know, it has, it has survived. So it's doing something right. Well, let's take a little bit more walk. Yeah. Well, I'm looking at this tree, and I was a Cub Scout, and we learned yeah. that moss only grows on the north side of the tree. This tree has moss on one side. Is that the north? Well, there's two things we're looking at. We're looking at the lichens, which are going up. You know, well, most... That's not moss? No. No, lichens are, uh, are, are different than moss. The moss is on the bottom. What you see up on the, uh, the, the sides of the trees, a lot of that are lichens, uh, but the mosses are, uh, are growing down around the base. Oh. And, and, and the moss is growing all around all the base. Around it, so yeah. the answer is that uh, anywhere it's moist enough, the mosses will grow. So uh, I it, wasn't a very good Cub Scout, I got to tell you. <laughs> you know, people, people say that all the time. You always look at the north you know, for, the, for the moss, and it's not very reliable because it depends on how sheltered the area is and that sort of thing. But uh, there are thousands of different moss species uh, in the in the U.S. One of the most amazing mosses are the sphagnum mosses, or the peat mosses. And uh, uh, most people have probably heard of, of peat bogs or using peat moss in horticulture. Uh, and sphagnum mosses, what they do is typically uh, the, the ones that form the bogs, they'll, they'll grow at the edge of a pond and they start growing out into the water a little bit, forming a floating mat. And that over time, it grows farther and farther out, and as that moss decomposes, 
the dead parts of the moss drop down and they're very, very low in nutrients and very, very acidic. And they basically sort of poison the water so that nothing decomposes. You hear about people finding bog men and bog law, bog um, wood and that sort of thing in, in, in bogs because it's so acidic, things just get kind of pickled in there. And other plants seed in and grow and can, uh, you know, can get going in that thing. But basically, the moss, like, like beavers or like people, is one of those few things that can actually just sort of shape its environment and create the habitat that it needs to grow. And that's kind of an amazing thing for a little tiny moss to be able to do that. And there are just, you know, hundreds of millions of acres across Canada that are, that are peat bog. Bill, it would seem to me that you have the perfect job for somebody like you. I, I do wake up every day and think that I'm, I'm very fortunate to be able to be doing what I love doing and also to this kind of thing, talking with other people about it, couldn't be happier. Bill Kalina is Director of Research and Development at the New England Wildflower Society. His new book is called Native Ferns, Moss, and Grasses. Our story was produced with the help of Alexandra Gutierrez. On the next Living on Earth, American astronauts will soon have to hitch rides into space aboard Russian rockets. The fact that we are dependent on another nation's resources, that doesn't scare me. In fact, I think we should celebrate that interdependence because, in fact, that may be what's required to fully realize our future in space. Missile gaps and space races next time on Living on Earth. Spring has sprung, the grass is riz. I wonder where the birdies is. In March and April, waterfowl migrate north across the American prairie. At a large lake at Arrowwood National Wildlife Refuge in North Dakota, flocks of ducks dive to find food. They're joined by other diving waterfowl, including canvasbacks, redheads, and lesser scorps, and were recorded by Lang Elliott and Ted Mack, for their CD, Wings Over the Prairie. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Beatrice and Jeff Young, with help from Jennifer Basler and Sarah Calkins. Our interns are Annie Gia and Margaret Rosano. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. Steve Kerwood is our executive producer. You can find us at LOE.org. I'm Bruce Gellerman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, 
the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.